God's word. Let's turn together to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, as we come to this transitional chapter, the theme that we've been tracing all through this first book of the Bible, that God is both good and gracious, we see that even here. Uh, And part of the reason we know that God is good and gracious is that his purposes will not fail. And so even in the transition of the generations, here in this chapter, there is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all mentioned Uh, the three generations of the patriarchs. We see how God preserves his purposes. Uh, They will not fail. They will be accomplished. And that gives us great comfort. Because sometimes we wonder, we wonder whether in fact the purposes of God might be somehow thwarted by our own failure and sin, by the evil, the powers of this world. Uh, What Genesis 25 teaches us is that no, No, God's purpose will be accomplished in this world. A purpose ultimately to bring himself great glory through all that occurs. But in order to see this, we need the help of the living God. So let's ask him for it. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people this morning and we pray that you would grant that we might hear your word, the very word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Come and open our eyes of faith that we might see. Open our hearts that we might believe. But above all, open our ears that we might hear the word of the living God. And like Samuel so long ago, we might say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens, and then we go and do. For we pray that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Genesis chapter 25, the first part of this chapter deals with the generations of Ishmael. I'm going to pick up uh, with the reading in verse 19. So Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padam Aram the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted this prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. 
Jacob said, sell, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the things I think most of us struggle with, I think, is this whole question of why some people come to Christ in faith while, while others do not. And it's especially difficult, I think, within our families. Perhaps you grew up in a family, a Christian household, where your parents and even your grandparents sought to point you kids, uh, those siblings in your family, to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and you believed. You heard the gospel through your family and in your church. And, and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And you, you followed him. But, but your siblings did not. And to this day, they, they continue to reject the gospel. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Or we look at our own children. And you saw it as a parent to live out the gospel before your children. You've taught them the, the doctrines of our holy religion just as you promised at their baptism. And yet some of your children follow Christ and others don't. And we wrestle with that, don't we? We wonder, how does that happen? Why does that happen? It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? But the Bible does give us some answer to the why question, at least at a, at a macro level, at, a, at an overall understanding of, of what's happening. And the, the answer starts with these facts. None of us deserve to be saved. Nobody deserves God's grace. Not one of us. Nobody here earns it. It's not something we choose. Now, the reason any of us are saved at all, any of us are rescued, the only reason any of us follow Christ, any of us experience God's grace is because God chooses to save us. Now, that's the doctrine of election, that the God, for his own good pleasure and in accordance with his own will, he chose to save a group of sinners, not because he saw that they would believe, not because he knew about their good works in the future, not for any reason in us. No, God choose, chooses to save for his own pleasure in order to magnify his own wisdom and his own grace. Now, friends, we wrestle with that. And if you don't, you aren't paying attention. This is hard. That's why our confession of faith warns us that this doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. And yet we, we also have to preach and teach these truths. But both because they're clearly in the Bible, but also because for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, they actually afford us comfort and assurance. Namely, that our salvation doesn't depend on us, doesn't depend on the right steps, doesn't depend on, on, on the right preacher or the right denomination. Doesn't de depend on the right scenes. No, your salvation and my salvation depends on the fact that God is a God of grace and mercy. 
It's because he chose, not because I chose. And because he chose, he will hold us fast. He won't let us go. Don't you see? It's God's grace from beginning to end. And his purposes, his purposes will stand. I think that's why this chapter is here in many ways. As I've already said, Genesis 25 is a transitional chapter. We've come to the end of Abraham's story. We are entering into the next major cycle in Genesis. The the cycle that deals especially with Jacob and his family. But these scenes here in chapter 25, they remind us that God is accomplishing his purposes in and through his chosen people. He's he's accomplishing them through the family of Abraham in a way that will bring him the greatest glory. And outwardly, outwardly it looks like this whole project of salvation hangs by a thread. Outwardly it looks like God got it wrong in choosing these people. Why did he choose them? They're a mess. And yet, God did. He chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He chose you and me and brought us to saving faith in Jesus Christ so that he might be honored and he might be glorified so that it might be to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we trust the facts that God will accomplish his purpose through his chosen ones. We see that here with Isaac and Ishmael in the the beginning part of the chapter. We didn't read it together, but the first 18 verses of this chapter, chapter 25 of Genesis, actually ties up a number of loose strings with Abraham and his son Ishmael. But the main focus of these verses, and indeed of this chapter, is actually on how God continues to accomplish his purposes. How he he continues to ensure that his promises will come true in this chosen family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First, notice how he accomplishes, how God accomplishes his purposes in Abraham's death. There's a number of details in this section, especially verses 1 to 11, that need not tarry us. After all, if you read it, it begins with Abraham took another wife. He, He takes another concubine with a with the privileges of a wife, a woman named Keturah. He has a number of other sons from whom the Middle Eastern tribes ultimately descend. But, but the main thing to notice in this section are actually two. First, in verse 6, though he gives gifts to other children, he actually gives everything else to Isaac. Look at verse 6. Actually, back up to verse 5. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward toward the east country. This reminds us that no matter what other children Abraham had, whether it's these other uh, children whose names are difficult to pronounce if you work your way through those names, or, or whether it's Ishmael himself, God's ultimate purpose would be realized through Isaac. And Abraham recognized that and ended up giving everything that he had to Isaac. Isaac is the true heir. But the second thing to notice is that God seconds what Abraham did. In verse 11, 
After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Lahai Roy. Now, if there was any doubt in anyone's mind through whom God's promises would come, this final action makes it clear. Abraham leaves all that he has to Isaac, and then God, in turn, on top, blesses Isaac. It's, it's a clear signal. If we've missed it to this point, God has chosen Isaac and his purposes will be accomplished through him. So that even in his dying, even in his inheritance, Abraham's actions signal the purposes of God. But God's purposes are accomplished in Isaac and Ishmael's um, world, not only in Abraham's death, but also through Ishmael's life. Uh, we've already said, Isaac is the chosen one, and yet, and yet God had made specific prophecies concerning Ishmael. And what you find in verses 12 to 18 is that God, in fact, accomplishes those prophecies. Uh, one prophecy that God had made back in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20, is that Ishmael would be the father of 12 rulers, and that God would make him into a great nation. But what do you find here in Genesis 25? Well, starting in verse 13, you have these names. And then in verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Do you get it? Back in chapter 17, even with this one who was not the chosen one, God had made a promise. Twelve princes shall descend from you. And what is Genesis 25? What is Moses telling us here? God kept his promise. His purpose stood. The prophecy came true. It was fulfilled. But there's another thing that God had said. Back in chapter 16, he had told Hagar... In this prophecy concerning Ishmael, that, that Ishmael would live in hostility toward all his brothers. Well, what does chapter 25 tell us? Right at the end, in verse 18, they settled from Hibbalah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. What is Moses trying to say? Well, the Hebrew word there for settle can also be fell. He fell against his kinsmen. There was ongoing conflict between the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. And it reminds us, God keeps his purposes. God's continuing to work in his world, even though Ishmael was not the chosen one. And even though he did not apparently work, walk in the ways of Yahweh, God still had purposes for him as well. So that whether it's in life or whether it's in death, God continues to work his will. He continues to work his purposes among humankind. You see that with Isaac and Ishmael. But you also see that with Jacob and Esau. In many ways, these two chapters, Genesis 25 and 26, have significant parallels with Genesis chapter 11 and 12. In the same way that the earlier chapters started with a genealogy and a summary and then moved to God's promise to Abraham, so you have here. You have a summary and a genealogy and then promises concerning what God's purpose is. 
And in the same way that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 will drive the action forward. From Genesis 12 to Genesis 24, we kept tracing out over and again, how would it be that God would keep his promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation with a great name and blessing for all the families of the earth? So it will be here. We find that, that Rebecca too was barren. For 20 years, it appears. And yet the, the obstacle that was so central in Abraham's story, it's just dealt with in a single verse. In verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isn't that striking? That which took up chapters in the Abraham story dealt with in a single verse because that's not the focus here no the focus here is going to center on these two children that she's going to carry these babies within her womb they're in conflict they are jostling and she's frightened so Rebecca inquires of the Lord and the Lord's response to her tells her about his purpose for these two children it's the centerpiece of the chapter, verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, God's not simply telling Rebecca here that the kids aren't going to get along. No, he's telling her how he's going to accomplish his covenant promise how he's going to accomplish his purpose. And it's going to be in this central phrase that the younger child will be the chosen one. The older child will serve the younger child. Now, friends, that, that overturned all expectation. In the ancient Near Eastern world of, of Isaac and Rebekah's day, just as it was in Jesus' own day, the expectation was that the oldest son would be the son who received the inheritance. He would be the one that had the leadership role in the family. But God here is overturning all of that. No, the younger son will be the chosen one. And Abraham's promises about a great name and a great nation and blessing for all the families of the earth, they shall go from Abraham to Isaac to the younger child. Which makes the birthing pretty fascinating, doesn't it? I wonder if Rebecca, was, as she's giving birth and trying to get those children to be born, if the promise wasn't in the back of her head and as Esau comes out first and then Jacob comes out next, clutching his heel. As readers, as hearers of God's word, we know what that means. We, we know that Jacob will be the chosen one. God's promises will be accomplished through him. And yet, as the story will unfold, and Ali, as you've read Genesis in the past, you, we're puzzled. We ask ourselves, why in the world did God choose Jacob? I mean, his name gives an indication of his character. He's a heel grabber. He's a supplanter. He's a grasper. He's a deceiver, a liar. Now, there's very little in the following chapters that would lead us to believe that God made a good choice in choosing Jacob. 
But of course, that, that reminds us, doesn't it? God doesn't choose his people based on foreseen faith or based on what they're going to do, the good works that they're going to do, unblemished character, sterling references, a set of recommendations that might push them forward. No, God chooses out of his own good purposes, for his own good pleasure. And, and what's so striking in, as the next scene comes is that God's purpose for Jacob will actually move forward through Esau's promise. As the two children grow up, there, there's differences and even hinted at conflicts. The text tells us in verse uh, 27 that Esau was a skillful hunter. A man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Oh, so Esau's out and about, going out to, to hunt and to kill. Jacob is a herder and a shepherd, a nomad more like his father and grandfather, one who stayed at home among the tents. And, and these differences caused their parents to relate to them differently. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game. Rebecca loved Jacob, it didn't mean that they necessarily that they didn't love the other child, but there were preferences at work. But, but the differences in temperament hit other differences as well, namely differences of character. Because while Jacob's character was deficient, Esau's character was disastrous. And you see that especially in verses 29 to 34. Jacob's apparently at work, at his work site with the sheep, and he's cooking dinner. Esau's been out hunting, and he comes into Jacob's camp famished and exhausted. He, he sees Jacob's red stew, and he demands some. And so Jacob makes an unusual request. He says, first sell me your birthright. Sell me your rights as the firstborn. Sell me your rights to the inheritance. Sell me your rights for prominence in the family. Sell me your birthright. Now, on the surface, that's a ridiculous request. Trade your future inheritance for a bowl of red stew? Trade your position as the firstborn for the equivalent of chili? But it's here you see the disastrous character of Esau. You see it in verse 32. He says, I am about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Now, was he really about to die? I mean, how, if so, how is he able to negotiate this? How is he able to pr prattle on? If he's really exhausted and about to die, wouldn't he be passed out, about to die? No, he wasn't about to die. This tells you something about his character. That he held his position as the oldest in careless indifference. That he despised his birthright, as verse 34 tells you. That he was, in fact, godless, as the New Testament points out. And so... Because of this disastrous character, because of his godlessness, because of the ways that he despised his position and his birthright and the promises of God, he, he promises, he swears an oath, he sells his birthright. And you, you see his thoughtlessness after he gets the stew. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and little stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. The, the way Moses writes that with four verbs connected together in such succession, it, it's meant to signal that, that Esau thought no more of it than if Jacob had given him a box of rocks. 
And if he had traded something that was just simply meaningless. And yet God's promise is about Jacob and Esau. And Esau's own promise to sell the birthright. They're all in accordance with God's purpose. You see, he had chosen Jacob. And Abraham's promises would be realized through Isaac to Jacob. And not even Jacob's flawed character. Not even the fact that he was a supplanter and a grasper and a liar would stop God's purposes of salvation. Which, friends, should give us a great deal of comfort. And a great deal of encouragement. Because if God's purposes with Isaac and Ishmael and with Jacob and Esau can be realized, if they will be stand, then surely they will stand with us. Over and again, the Bible makes that clear. Uh, over and again, from Genesis to Revelation, God wants you to know that his purposes concerning you will in fact be accomplished. They will stand. The Apostle Paul makes that very point as he reflects on this scene with Jacob and Esau. Uh, in Romans chapter 9, he, he shows us how God's purpose is in election. His purpose to show mercy to some is is because he will accomplish his purpose. In Romans 9, chapter 9, verse 10, he said, he wrote, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then verse 16, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. Do you hear it? God's purpose will stand. His mercy will be magnified and his grace will take center stage. And that's because we're all lost. We're all sinners. We're all ungodly. We are all enemies. There is no one here who has a claim upon God's grace. No one here who can somehow trophy perfect righteousness before God and say, that salvation actually belongs to me. I earned it. None of us can talk in terms of perfect love for God and perfect love for our neighbor as God requires. Which means that if any of us are going to be saved, it's because God chose to do it. God chooses the foolish and the weak and the lowly things of the world. He chooses to save nobodies. So that he might receive great acclaim and great glory. So that we might make our boast in him. Friends, this is why. This is why we can have great assurance this morning. Because we look at ourselves and we see the messes we are. I mean, we're no better than Jacob. We're no better than Esau, really. I mean, if it weren't for the grace of God saving us and keeping us and preserving us, we would sell our souls for all that this world could offer us. Chili, red stew, things that we would simply eat and get up and go our way. Because in our heart of hearts, we know who we are. We are heel grabbers and supplanters and deceivers and graspers. 
I mean, we connive and manipulate. We desire and scheme. There is nothing in us, nothing in you and nothing in me that would recommend us to God. And you, yet God not only chose to save you, he promises that his purposes towards you will stand. He whom he predestined and called, the one whom he justified, he will surely glorify. And he who began a good work in you shall surely accomplish it in the day of Jesus Christ. He will sanctify you through and through. He will do it. Why? Because of what's in you? Because somehow you're so great? No. Not for any good in us. But because of his great love. And for the fame of his name as a God who is great and good and gracious. That's why, my friend, his purpose will stand. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, as we're about to sing here in a moment, all of us say, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there was room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Lord, we know in our heart of hearts there is no reason why, apart from your own good pleasure and for the glory of your name. And so, Lord, please make us a grateful people this morning. Not, not self-righteous, looking at others. Why didn't they get it? Not arrogant, not boastful in ourselves. No, make us grateful. Grateful for your grace and mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. Grateful for the effectual calling that enlightened our minds and renewed our wills so that we were persuaded to embrace you as you were offered to us in the gospel. Grateful. Lord, fill our hearts with praise this morning, we ask. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In your worship booklets, you